Good morning and welcome to this broadcast of Faith Mountain Ministries. I'm sitting here back in Florida after a couple of weeks of heavy travel and ministry. God's doing some amazing things in the earth today. Everywhere we go, we talk about union, union with God, that there's no distance or separation, but the veil that has been torn between the Holy of Holies and humanity has given us the access to the holiness of God that completely redefines our entire identity. And for 2,000 years, we have been in a beautiful revelation that's unfolding of what that union actually means. How the holiness and righteousness of God becomes our inheritance. How the Lord has made us to, to be His children by His design and His desire by inviting us into that awareness of the spiritual that goes beyond the realm of the physical that we perceive and access with our senses that we enjoy here in this life. It doesn't demote it to a lesser state, but rather it gives us the access to be able to live in this physical realm, experiencing, as Jesus says, abundance of life. And he said that's why he came. came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. The abundance of the ever unfolding more of God, the ever uh, unfolding I am-ness of God, the essence and the very energy of who he is that infuses us with the very life of heaven that heals us, saves us, delivers us, gives us all of the tools and authority to enforce the victory of the cross, that gives us uh, access to revelation in the mind of Christ or the Christ mind where we can unveiled to the world around us, the ideas and thoughts of God. David said are so precious that number all of the sand. All of those things uh, of the, the mind of Christ that aligns our thoughts with heaven puts us in a position of being, uh, I would say, uh, on the offensive when it comes to love, on the offensive when it comes to grace. To have the capacity to initiate with grace not give grace as a reward for somebody's good behavior, but as an invitation for somebody to leave behind a false identity and a false self and to step in the reality of who Jesus says they are. Who God knows a person to be is who he's always known them to be from before the foundation of the world. And so I always love to say we have really one journey in this life. If you wanted to boil it all down into one thing, and that is find out an eternally good God who's by his very nature is love. Find out what God has always believed about you and then agree with that. Knowing that, and and just understand this, I've said this a thousand times, a thousand different ways, but he's not going to allow your misperceptions or wrong perceptions of who you are dictate to him what he can think about you. For it is what he believes about us that defines who we are. And so let let go of what you believe about yourself if what you believe about yourself isn't what God thinks. Maybe you've never gone around asking God what he thinks or believes about you. But if you do, God will expose lies you believed about yourself and replace them with the truth of what he believes. And then do the same thing with somebody else, somebody close to you. Ask God, what do you believe about that person? What do you think about that person? You know, to know what the Lord thinks about somebody else is really to open yourself up to a prophetic grace where you can begin to 
speak the identity of heaven over somebody, to call them uh, to, to that place of aligning with the truth of who the Father believes they are. Prophecy isn't just uh, predicting the future. Uh, prophecy isn't just showing off via words of knowledge of things you just seem to automatically know about a person's life. You know, uh, we all love to, to watch that kind of stuff, but the clamor for that is, is not, I believe, the gift of prophecy or what it's for. Um, it's not what the gift of prophecy is for. It can be used for that. Certainly prophetic gifts can unveil words of knowledge, can unlock uh, all kinds of amazing things, predictive capacities, things like that. But to desire to prophesy is not to desire to have some superpower so that you can show off to people around you uh, that you know things that they just didn't know. Um, that, that, that attracts a lot of people and sells a lot of books. And I think people would pay money for that superpower if they could. We're just, we're just that simple. But what prophecy really is all about is capturing the heart and the mind of God. You know, you remember when Jesus said, consider the lilies of the field? Have you noticed the birds of the air? And he starts talking in, in terms of just look at the world around you and just being in awe and childlike wonder at everything going on around you. You understand, he was prophesying while he was speaking. What was he doing? He was catching uh, the, the, the sound of heaven that draws us to the wonder of the now that we are standing in the beauty of the world around us and the peace that we have access to in the very presence of God that we are never far from perceiving. And in that place, he was prophesying into our present. He was prophesying into the present of all of humanity for all of time. Stop for a moment and just look around at the world around you. Uh, capture the glory of God in the simplicity of the world around you. And isn't that a beautiful prophetic gift and a prophetic grace? I, I, I find that to be the one I'm the most interested in these days. When it comes to things of the future, there's, you know, if God wants me to know those things and wants you to know those things, I feel like he'll drop those things on our heart. He set up divine appointments for us, and certainly we want to have our ears and eyes open to be able to respond to those things. When those burning bush moments happen, we're going to stop and let the Lord divert our moments and and uh, and capture us so that we can know how to step into the season that we have ahead of us, you know. But I find that the greatest uh, ability to prophesy really happens when we can recognize the wonder and the beauty in the world around us, and draw people's attention to it, and glorify God in the midst of it. Uh, in everything the Lord, you know, has spoken and said, He was prophesying. It wasn't just about predicting things. You know, and if prediction was all prophecy was and spend his whole time predicting the future, then really it puts us into a time period that um, if we can put our hands under the future, we would certainly want to change just about everything that would cause us pain. But, you know, even the moments of suffering uh, that are that are in our future, even in our past, have had the capacity to teach us something and be redeemed in the teaching. And isn't it true that the things we go through have a tendency to teach us some things about who God is and who we are and who we thought we were and, and the very nature and the character of, of what we're called to do in this life is often challenged by some of the things that we face in this life. And that's okay. We've got to be okay with that. But anyhow, uh, these are the thoughts I've been talking about in the last few weeks as I've been just sharing uh, some really, really beautiful uh, ideas um, with churches and, and different people. And uh, one of the things I've been talking a lot about is uh, Moses in the burning bush. 
So I want to take you on a little bit of a journey uh, down that uh, rabbit trail and just see where we end up. So let me first read you the story from Exodus chapter 3. Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of the bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. The Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now therefore, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. So he said, I will certainly be with you. And this is a sign to you that I've sent you when you've brought the people out of Egypt, you will serve God on this mountain. And Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am that I am. And he said, You shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And we'll stop there for just a second. I want to go back to verses 11 for just a moment uh, before we go back and spend some time at the bush, uh, the bush that was burning and not consumed. Verse 11, Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Have you ever asked God about your qualifications? Have you ever felt like God was calling you to do something that was beyond your pay grade? And as you look around the billions of people on earth, and uh, you know probably your pastors and teachers and churches, uh, effective communicators and strong leaders, you ask yourself the question, wait a minute, God, have you made a mistake? Should you have chosen somebody else? But you can identify with Moses here when Moses, the backside of the desert, who seems to have been forgotten by God for decades now, is later in his years and says to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel 
out of Egypt. Now, God doesn't talk to Moses now about his qualifications. God doesn't tell Moses about who he is. When I talk about identity, people often get excited because they stop to think, I'm going to tell you about who you are. Uh, but you might be frustrated when I preach on identity to hear me just spend a lot of time talking about Jesus, talking about what he thinks of you by revealing a revelation of who he is. And that's by design, because we're made in the image and likeness of God. To get our eyes off of ourself and to get it on Jesus first, get our attention on him first, is one of the first steps in discovering the reality of who we truly are. And so when Moses asks God who he is, what qualifies him? What makes him so special? Shouldn't he choose somebody else? All these things are wrapped up in the question, who am I that I should do this? God talks about himself, and not himself in terms of his nature. That, that comes later when he says, I am. But he talks about himself in terms of his proximity to Moses. Verse 12, God's response to Moses is, I will certainly be with you. Okay, this is the qualification for anything, anything when it comes to doing great things for God or with God. You guys remember when Jesus spoke those words that have caused people to fear for a long time. Many will come in that day and say, Lord, Lord, we did all these things and say, depart from me, I never knew you. People look at those verses, and I preached on those a lot. They're actually an invitation to a greater level of intimacy that I think is always on the, uh, the heart of God to draw us into. But keep in mind, the point here is relationship and proximity. What Jesus describes here is people who simply were pursuing the power of God, moves of God, something that would cause them to have a dynam dynamic ministry, but not relationship with him. And keep in mind, coming near to him is the key. Uh, it's, the, it's the highest call. Proximity to him. He's, he's looking for people who want to spend time with him. Again, when Jesus resurrected from the dead, the first thing he does is he goes spends time with people who want to hang out with him. He doesn't exact revenge on his enemies. He just wants to spend time with people who want to be with him. In Ezekiel chapter 44, there's two groups of priests, and one of them has desecrated the, the sanctuary, and, and God says, you guys can still minister to people, but you can't come near to me. There's another group called the Sons of Zadok, and he says to you, it is, it is to come near to me because you've kept my name. You haven't profaned the sanctuary. And so proximity to him is an invitation and a reward. It's the highest calling to minister to the Lord first. Ministry to people is good, but ministry to him is better. Here, God qualifies Moses by saying, I will be with you. And understand, that's all the qualification you need. I mean, the, the attitude in the heart of, God, if you're not going, we don't want to go. We don't want to go before you. We don't want to go without you. We don't want to go do something that we can uh, look and point to in our own strength to come back and say, look what we did. 
No, God, we, we actually want to partner with you and have you walk with us. Even if it goes through the valley of the shadow of death, you don't want to be alone. And that's the promise that he is absolutely with us. Isn't it an amazing reality that the light of the world doesn't mind meeting with us in the valley of the shadow of death? And in the valley of the shadow, that's what we need. We need the light of the world to come and illuminate our hearts and show us, point us the way out, out of the valley of the shadow because that's not where we are destined to live. So understand, and God calls you to something uh, God calls you to a ministry. God calls you to a job. God calls you to, uh, to to do something that is beyond your pay grade. You can do all things through him who gives you strength. But he gives you strength by giving you himself. His strength doesn't come independent of him. His strength is a part of who he is. And he is closer. This is why I preach so much on union. Because without that revelation of union, you may try to go and do great things for God from a posture of distance and separation. But if you're being called to do something you don't think you can do, may today you hear these words, I will certainly be with you. Now let's go back up to the story of the burning bush for just a moment. I want to show you a couple of things about this this incident that is so important. The bush was an unexpected occurrence. It wasn't on Moses' calendar. He didn't schedule this meeting with God that was going to change his whole life. I think sometimes people end up going to a conference that this conference is going to change my life. Certainly it can. Uh, this church service is going to change my life. Certainly it can. But we set a lot of expectations for high-profile events and gatherings where God might meet with us there, change our life, whatever. And that certainly could be the case. But don't so focus on high-profile uh, mega events that you miss the burning bushes that God places in your path unexpectedly. The burning bush was not a scheduled event. It was not a scheduled gathering. It was not a scheduled meeting it was an unexpected occurrence. And yet that unexpected occurrence is about to change Moses' life and completely redefine his entire destiny. That moment at that burning bush became a, a point of divine commissioning that changed the course of his life. After, you know, 40 years on the backside of the desert, you pretty much, you know, have lived a long enough lifetime back there to think that this is what I've got for the rest of my life. And how many of you know that Moses certainly would have felt disqualified when he looked at the injustice of what the Egyptians were doing to the people of God, the Israelites, uh, and, and he killed an Egyptian to rescue uh, an Israelite, found himself to be a wanted murderer, I mean, if you know that after 40 years, you would begin to think that you were disqualified for doing anything from God or for God, and that God probably agreed with that disqualification because he just let you alone for decades on the backside of the wilderness, serving your father-in-law, you know, uh, doing whatever he asks you to do, just sort of assimilating into the family and just being, just, you know, just 
happy with just living life as a worker. And yet, in the middle of all of this, God is going to meet Moses. Now listen, I don't, I don't have any sense that God uh, gave Moses any hope that this was even a possibility. Moses probably felt like he had squandered his destiny and squandered every dream. I mean, maybe it took 40 years for every dream on Moses' heart to die so that God could simply give Moses the gift of himself. Himself, walk, walking with Moses. And understand, Moses is going to go on later in, in Exodus chapter 3 to explain to God his personal lack of ability. Moses wasn't a speaker. And so God says, yeah, I'm going to give you a guy named Aaron. He has the ability to talk. Well, stop for a second. Why didn't God pick Aaron? Why pick Moses? <laughs> Listen, if we start asking why God sees qualifications in one person and not another for a particular task, you know, we'll, we'll be beating our head against a wall. God's choices for who he moves through and works through have never made any human sense. And, and shouldn't be a point of obsession for us. Neither should we idolize who God chooses to move through and, and work through. But we should recognize the authority that's on their life because of the proximity that they have toward the Lord in fulfilling their destiny and fulfilling their call. I also want you to see what happened to trigger the response of God in this moment. Uh, I, I want you to just... Think about this question with me, because I don't want to run out of time without asking this question. I wonder how many burning bushes Moses missed. Think about that. How many burning bushes do you think Moses missed uh, in his time in the backside of the desert? It's quite possible. We don't know this for sure. But it's quite possible that Moses had walked by burning bushes for months, even years, little moments of unexpected occurrence that he just passed by. He said, Bill, how can you say that? Because Moses could have just as easily passed this, this bush. God wasn't screaming to Moses, hey, pay attention here. God just simply created an unexpected occurrence. And on this day, for whatever reason, Moses, the Bible says, turned aside. And he actually purposes in his heart, saying in his heart, he says, I will turn aside and see this. In other words, I'm going to investigate this a little bit. You know, uh, maybe you're driving by a church or driving by somewhere and suddenly you feel like, I need, I need to go there. What's happening? Maybe a burning bush moment. You may have a big event coming up in the future and you're just expecting that's going to be the moment where God meets with you. And then all of a sudden, you just happen to be driving by a church or a park or a, suddenly a person's name comes to mind. You think, I need to go coffee with that person. And what is that? It's something as simple as just the burning bush and you paying attention to that moment and investigating it. It's, it's almost like jiggling the handle of a door that you find in front of you. You know, if you're the kind of person where you're so focused and you don't want to, you don't want to divert your attention to the right or to the left, and sometimes God calls us to focus and everything seems like a distraction. But sometimes what looks like a distraction is actually a burning bush moment, and it could be God. You need to begin to learn to recognize the things that are worth investigating and the things that are worth letting alone. In this moment, though, God now waits to see. And when God looks and sees that Moses turned aside, the Bible says, then God spoke. I think the Lord is often looking 
for us to turn aside to investigate the things that he puts in our path to see whether or not it is him. It doesn't say that God placed the bush directly in the path. He, he had to turn aside. So it was out of the direction of where he was going. I call this a divine distraction. I think there are demonic distractions. I think there are divine distractions. And what we need to ask the Lord for is spiritual discernment. And I think by the new covenant, we have access to the Holy Spirit living within us who can speak to us by the voice of the Lord, to, to hear the word of the Lord from the Holy Spirit is to know the nudges, the slightest still small nudges of the voice of the Lord to encourage us to not miss the divine opportunities that God places in front of us. I believe it's Graham Cook that says so beautifully, in order to seize the opportunity of a lifetime, you must act within the lifetime of the opportunity. So learn to recognize unusual circumstances and activity around you that very well may be a divine appointment, not so much a divine distraction. It's one thing to have eyes to see something, though. It's another thing to have a heart to turn aside. And to have that heart to turn aside, to give attention to what God has placed in front of you, may be all it takes for you to have an encounter with the Lord that completely changes the course of your life. A dear friend of ours, E. Passmore, uh, wrote a beautiful song about this called Take Off Your Shoes. And she started seeing the thing about the holy ground and the taking off of the shoes, not as a point of fear and not perhaps an in inconvenience, but an invitation to commune with the Lord from a place of rest. As if God was saying, take off and remove every man-made barrier between us. Because that's what shoes were, are, a man-made barrier. So holy ground here is not a place of fear. It's a place of intimacy. If holy ground was something not to be touched, then God would have told Moses, keep your shoes on. Uh, but he doesn't. He says, take your shoes off. Now stop and think about this with me for a second. Name a situation where you could come before any earthly ruler and feel free to just kick off your shoes. And I believe what God was saying in this moment is, you're going to be here a second. <laughs> Stick around a minute. Your feet don't need protecting in this moment. You're not going to need to suddenly flee. So having your shoes close by. The most basic, lowest level of our humanity, that is our feet, can be exposed in this moment. And isn't it interesting? You say, well, but, but the holy, it's, it's untouchable. Well, who is more holy than the incarnation of God in flesh in Jesus Christ? And one day Jesus took a basin, a towel, and some water, and he knelt before the disciples, and he, with his holy hands, touched their dusty, dirty feet for the purpose of cleaning them. You know, this beautiful expression of washing the disciples' feet, take it all the way back to God from the burning bush moment saying to Moses, take off your shoes, this is holy ground. And God was about to cleanse his humanity, I think, with his very presence. That's what the Lord does with his presence. 
He brings purity into our humanity. He brings righteousness and holiness into every sinful perspective and lie that we've ever believed about ourselves. And, you know, kicking off your shoes, it's, it's, it's losing baggage, isn't it? And the more aware that we find ourselves of the presence of the Lord, the less you need. And let that be the lesson of the day, that the more aware that we are of the presence of the Lord, the less we need. The Father, I thank you for your presence in our lives. Would you go before us to prepare divine appointments, burning bushes before us, cause us to turn aside to see what you have for us in those moments, and, and even derailing our uh, plans to reveal our divine destiny. It's who you are, and it's what you do, and we love you. Thank you, Jesus, for being so good to us, for continually revealing yourself to us as more than enough, our provider, our healer, our source, our supplier. Thank you, Lord, for being our joy, our peace, the way, the truth, the life, the light of the world that shines in the midst of the darkness. Thanks, Jesus, for everything. Amen. If you'd like to write to us, you can do so by writing to Faith Mountain Ministries, Box 595, Marshall, Minnesota, 56258. To check out the schedule, go to BillVanderbush.com and click on the schedule link to see if we're going to be anywhere near you. You can also get resources at BillVanderbush.com. I recommend the three Bible studies that we've done on Hebrews, Ephesians, and the book of James, verse by verse, from a new or Christic covenant perspective. It will change your life and ignite a hunger for the Word of God within you. This is Bill Vanderbush from all of us here at Faith Mountain Ministries. Until next time, may the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.